series, part three in our series, titled Church. This is Church. In previous episodes, we have seen the nature of the church, and we saw that it is both universal and local. The authority of the church, it is vested in Christ and his apostles. There's a slide for all this slide, man. And the community of the church, it is frequent and edifying. Now today we come to a fourth point in our series on the church, and it is this. The gathering of the church is essential weekly and scriptural. By scriptural, I mean, as you'll see, it is to be governed by Scripture. It is regulated by Scripture. It is done according to Scripture. The gatherings of the church, they are essential. They are to be every week, and they are to be according to the dictates of Scripture. By the way, just because several people ask, and people ask me this frequently, not infrequently, uh, are you getting this outline from somebody else? And no, it would be better if I got it from somebody else. This is just me. If I got it from somebody else, I would tell you I abhor plagiarism. There'll be some quotes today. I'll tell you where they're from. I think plagiarism is stealing and lying. We could talk about that, but I don't want to take more time, so I go on. As we warm up to our topic today, in the year 1800, in that very year, Timothy Dwight was and had been president of Yale college. He was president of Yale. What I'm about to read from him, just imagine if the current president of Yale would write such things. But Timothy Dwight, who was grandson of the great, of the amazing Jonathan Edwards, pastor, theologian par excellence, this is his grandson, Timothy Dwight, and he wrote a famous hymn. It is still famous, and rightly so. I'm going to weave it through here and there in the sermon today. Here's the first place where it pops up. As we think about the gathering of the church, think about what Timothy Dwight wrote. He wrote, I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode. The church, our blessed Redeemer, saved with his own precious blood. Next stanza. I love thy church, O God. Her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye, and graven on thy hand. The great Timothy Dwight. And by the way, I wish more modern hymnody sounded more like that. I don't know if you realize it, but every phrase, every comment, every part is taken from Scripture and just rephrase to fit into a song, and it's all doing systematic theology to teach one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. So I wish more hymnody was like that, letting the Word of Christ dwell in it richly. But what we're looking at today, is, again, is the gatherings of the church. They are essential weekly and scriptural. Let's go to the next slide. There it is, yes. The gatherings of the church are essential. We're going to start there. They're essential. Do you believe that? The gatherings of, of Jesus' church and local churches, they are essential. That means they are not optional. That means they're not one of many possibilities for the weekend. No, it rather means that they are essential. They are of the very essence. They're the center. They're the core of what life in a local church is. They are essential. And they're essential like food is essential, like water is essential, like sleep is essential, like oxygen is essential, so is gathering as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a couple of reasons why they are essential. There could be more, but these might be the bigger ones. Number one, the gatherings of the church are essential to the church's mission. They are essential to the church's mission. 
the head of the church, the founder of the church, the chief cornerstone of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone has the authority. He's the authority in the church. He alone has authority to tell us what our mission is and how we carry it out. And he hands us our mission. Maybe the most clear statement of it is found in Matthew 28. Let me read it for you. If you've been around the church long, you've heard it before. Well, hear it again, please. Jesus said to his apostles right before he ascended into heaven, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the mission Jesus has given his church. We're to lead people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's making disciples. And then once we got a disciple, we are to baptize them. And then while we've baptized them, as soon as we baptize them, even maybe before we baptize them, we start teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. In case you didn't know it, there are over a thousand commands for believers in the New Testament. And Jesus intends that his people be taught all 1,000 of those. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of teaching. There's a lot of teaching to be done. And not only are we to be, be taught what to do, to do all that he's commanded, but there's also all the theology that needs to undergird what we do. So, for example, Paul wrote Romans, all this massive theology, so he could give a smaller number of exhortations. So, do this and do that and do the other. So, there's teaching about what to believe, and there's teaching about how to live, and Jesus wants all of that taught to his people. That's part of the church's mission. But where are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to do that? When are we supposed to do that? Certain organizations answer and say, well, you do it in little one-on-one meetings. All right, well, I'm all for one-on-one meetings. One-on-one meetings are great, but that would, that would be very labor-intensive if we're going to teach every believer all the commands of Christ in one-on-one meetings. That's a, that's a mission, that's a strategy, rather, that does not scale. Like if you have more than 30 people in your church, it's going to be pretty hard to have one-on-one meetings and teach everybody one-on-one the whole counsel of God about what to believe and what to do. Other people say, no, you do it in small groups. I am all for small groups. We love our small groups at Cornerstone. But if we had to carry out that part of the Great Commission just in small groups, ditto, that's very labor-intensive. It doesn't scale if you have more than 15, 20 people or so on. How and when are we supposed to teach the people of God everything that Christ teaches them and commands them in the New Testament? Answer, the head of the church, the foundation of the church, the cornerstone of the church intends that we do that primarily in the gatherings of his people. This is where it's supposed to happen. We're supposed to gather the people together, and there we're supposed to teach and teach and teach and teach and teach. Here's what you're supposed to believe. It's from the head of the church. Here's what you're supposed to do. It's from the head of the church, so that you are supposed to wind up being extremely well taught, instructed, shaped, formed, doing disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So part of the duty of pastors is to do that teaching. It is essential for the church's mission. What is? The gathering of the church. It's essential for the church's mission. Here's a second thing for which it is essential. It is essential for our spiritual health. It's essential that you gather with God's people regularly. Remember, regular could be every Christmas. Not that kind of regularly. Frequently and regularly. It's essential that you gather for your spiritual health 
for your spiritual well-being, for your spiritual development. God wants us gathering weekly, pretty much. Every week for the rest of your life, you're gathering with the people of God. That's the engine that God provided. That's the means that God intended for your spiritual health. Are there other means? There certainly are. You can go home today and read your Bible, and you can pray, and you can have some family worship time, and you should, especially if you've got little ones coming up in your family. You ought to be instructing them in the home and teaching them the doctrines and the practices in the Word of God. So there, and there are small groups you can gather in. Those are very helpful. But, but the primary thing that God intends for your spiritual health and your spiritual development is the gatherings of the people of God. And when we look at the pages of the New Testament, we always see the apostles gathering their converts, gathering their believers, gathering people in the churches, and there primarily all the teaching and all the shaping occurs. Let me give you one example of that. So the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, he's preaching in a place called uh, Troas. This is where the famous Eutychus, remember Eutychus? What happened to Eutychus? He's the guy who fell asleep in Paul's sermon. Like, I can understand if you fall asleep in my sermon, but that's the Apostle Paul, and maybe you only got him there this once in your town, and he's preaching his sermon, and Eutychus is overcome by sleep. He's sitting in the window, and he falls out, and, the, and he's dead, and Paul raises him up and leads him back to life. But here's the point. Well, it was obviously a p.m. service. Sunday was a working day. Sometimes they gathered early Sunday morning before work, but they gathered p.m. after Sunday work uh, for a gathering for worship. So let's say they gathered at 7, and Eutychus fell out the window at 8, and Paul went down and raised him up. And then it says, and Paul continued his discourse until midnight, and then he went on and he continued it till the sun came up. How many vote for if we do that on Sundays? I don't have any votes there, all right? Why did he do that? Why did he preach long enough that poor Eutychus fell out the window and died? Why did he raise it up again, preach on till midnight, and preach on till the sun came up? Why do that, Paul? Because it is essential for the spiritual health of the people of God that they be instructed and taught and exhorted and admonished from the Word of God. It's essential. And maybe that's why, let's go back to Timothy Dwight's hymn from the year 1800. Maybe that's why he wrote, next slide, please, there it is. Beyond my highest joy, I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet communion, solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. Every bit of that's taken from Scripture. That's good theology. That's a good hymn. So what are we seeing? The gatherings of the church are essential. They're essential to the church's mission. They're essential to our spiritual health. Now, thirdly, under the gatherings of the church are essential. They're essential because, well, simply because they are the New Testament pattern. Here's what I mean by that. If you get your Bible and open up to the New Testament, and I sure hope you do, and if you go through the book of Acts and see what they did with believers, and if you go through all the epistles and see what is said to believers, you will find on virtually every page that what they did is they gathered believers into local churches where they were taught and exhorted, where they developed all the one another's and the communion of the Christian life. That was God's primary engine. That was the main means by which God intended to grow his people strong in the Lord Jesus Christ. And everywhere on the pages of the New Testament, we see this, we see this pattern. Let me show you some quick examples. I won't make a lot of comments about these or it would take way too long, but here we go. First Corinthians eleven eighteen. 18, Paul says, for 
in the first place when you come together as a church. So Paul expected, Paul knew that the regular habit, it was every Sunday as we're going to see shortly, every Sunday the church in Corinth, they all came together as a church. Sure, they're the church universal out there somewhere before they come together, but they also needed to come together and be the church local, and every Sunday they came together as a church, and he heard that there were divisions among them. Let's go to a, a second verse on this, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty. when you come together. They came together. First Corinthians eleven thirty three. He says again, when you come together, they came together. First Corinthians fourteen twenty three. I like it even better. He says, if therefore the whole church comes together, and uh, and, and all speak in tongues. And, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? Paul anticipated that the church came together, the church came together, the church gathered together, and the whole church came together. And this is, this is the New Testament pattern. We see it everywhere. We see it again in Hebrews chapter 10. Let me read it for you, where the author writes, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Some neglect it. For some, it's like one of many options on the weekend. Yeah, I don't feel like church today. I feel like going there. We'll go there. No, not, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but meeting so that you can be encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. They met together. They met together. The whole church met together. Don't neglect that. Neglect working out. Neglect food. Actually, I don't mean either of those. Neglect breathing and oxygen. Neglect bathing. I really don't mean that one either. But neglect all of those before you would neglect gathering with the people of God for corporate worship and praise. We're not the first Christians who thought about this. We're not the first Christians on the planet who studied their brains out in their Bibles and prayed their hearts out to find out what is the will of God for us as church people. In the, in the 1600s, the London Baptist Confession of 1689, a gathered assembly of pastors and theologians wrote these words, London Baptist Confession 26.5b. Got to have that B in there. Those thus called, he commandeth to walk together. Are you walking together? Are you doing life with the believers in your church? He commandeth to walk together in particular societies or churches. In other words, not in the universal church, floating around somewhere, no connection, no accountability, no commitments. No, rather, to walk together in particular societies or churches. Why? For their mutual edification and for the due performance of that public worship which he requireth of them in the world. There have been Christians before us. Here's what some of the best found and wrote for us in one of the best confessions of faith ever written on the planet, maybe the best ever. So the gatherings of God's people are essential because, let's review, because they are essential to the church's mission, because they are essential for our spiritual health, because they are essential um, because they are the New Testament pattern. So we've seen that so far. But now something else about the gathering of the church. I want to just throw in here, in case you didn't know it, you all know it, humor me, keep paying attention, stay with me. The gathering of the church are also weekly. Did you know that? In the New Testament, they met weekly. I don't know if you all know, Cornerstone is open 
weekly. We do all of this weekly. And when we look at the pages of the New Testament, we see not only did they gather, but they did it weekly. That was their rhythm. You know, you tend to have a rhythm of things you do weekly, like Monday through Friday, maybe you go to work. Um, we've got some employees here. We have some rhythms in our relationships. On certain days, there's one-on-ones with these. On other days, there's one-on-ones with those. On, another, on one of those days, there's a whole group meeting. And these are rhythms. We do these over and over and over every week. We have rhythms in our lives. There's a rhythm in, in, intended by the head of the church for the life of his people relative to the gatherings of that church. And the rhythm is weekly. There are three key passages for this. Three is enough. The Bible says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be confirmed. So we're going to confirm that it's a weekly thing. Let's look together at Acts 20 and verse 7. And here we read, on the first day of the week, Dr. Luke writes, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. This is the time when Eutychus fell out the window. When was it? What day of the week were they meeting on? It was the first day of the week. Why the first day of the week? Well, it used to be the Sabbath was the seventh day of the week forever under Israel's covenant, under Israel's law. They gathered on a weekly rhythm, but it was Saturdays. Why did it change to Sunday? Because it's on Sunday that Jesus Christ rose and we're new creations in Christ. So in this new creation, we meet on a new day. And that day is clearly marked out as the first day of the week. Notice two things they were doing. They were breaking bread. That's they're gathered to have communion together. And the other thing they were doing is this. Paul talked with them. That means he preached and exhorted and proclaimed the Word of God. He taught them theology. He taught them doctrine. He taught them truth. And he taught them what to do about it. And they did this. They gathered regularly on the first day of the week to do this. We see it again in 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Let me read it for you. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so this isn't something unique just to Corinth, but it's rather all churches everywhere we should understand, so you also are to do on the first day of every week. And then he goes into how they're to take up that collection. Why are they taking up the collection on the first day of the week? because that's the day they were all gathered. How do you take up a collection when they're not gathered? Well, now we have means. Now you can do it through your bank. Now you can do it through the Tithely app. Now you can do it in various means. But in those days, you had to physically be there to give your offering to the collection. And so he said, well, let's take the collections on the first day of the week, you in Corinth, all the churches of Galatia, because that's the day when believers gather. Then we also have Revelation 1.10, which is an interesting witness to this whole thing about the gatherings are weekly. He said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now it's A.D. 90 when John writes this. He's an old man. He's been in the church from the very beginning. And by this time, he is calling Sunday the Lord's day. The Lord's day. This is the day that is committed to the Lord. It doesn't tell us what day of the week that is, but extra biblical writings from as early as AD 150 and later, for example, the epistle of Barnabas, writings by Pliny, writings by Eusebius, the church father, they all say that John in Revelation 1.10 was saying the Lord's day, and what he meant was Sunday. They all identified that as Sunday, the day for Christian worship, the day on which believers gathered to worship their Lord. So the evidence is in New Testament believers gather weekly, 
and the day of their gathering is Sunday, the Lord's day. So this is part of what we're supposed to be teaching the people of God. It's part of what we're supposed to be instructing you in so you'll know, oh, the head of the church, the foundation, the cornerstone in the foundation, he intends his engine for my development, his means for my spiritual maturity and carrying out his mission is that I would gather weekly with God's people for worship, for instruction, for fellowship, for communion, for prayers, for baptisms, for all the things the New Testament shows us that we are to do. Newsflash. Many believers in our day don't. Sam Rayner, who's part of Lifeway Research, they're very good at, they're very skillful at doing studies and statistics and telling us, here's the state of the church in this matter, here's the state in that matter. He says, and I quote him, an active member was once considered someone who came twice or three times a week. Amen? Some of you remember that? It used to be like a good churchman goes to church Sunday morning and Sunday night, and what was the other one? And Wednesday night. Yeah, 30 years ago when I was a believer, everybody did that. They were all there. They never missed. If they missed, you worried about them. Everybody was there Sunday morning, Sunday night, and many of them were there again on Wednesday night. Sam Rayner goes on to say, however, today... An active member, this is based on good data, good statistics. Today, an active member is considered someone who comes twice a month. So it used to be you got three times a week for your spiritual development, for your edification in the things of Christ, and now it's twice a month on average. Now, i got to tell you, that leads to weak believers, That leads to wobbly believers. That leads to frail believers. That leads to weak churches. I I don't know how you could possibly be strong in the Lord Jesus if you're only showing up for what God intends twice a month. Hey, Cornerstone, let's do better than that. Amen? Amen. So let's review. The gatherings of the church are essential. The gatherings of the church are weekly. Now we're going to see that the gatherings of the church are designed by Jesus Christ and regulated in Scripture. In other words, Jesus doesn't say he's the head of the church, he's the foundation, he's the chief cornerstone, and he does not say, all right, y'all are supposed to gather, it's up to you how you put that together. It's up to you what elements you include in that. It's up to you what things are there. No, no, no. He says you're supposed to gather, and there are things I want you to do because these will be for your spiritual well-being and your benefit. So the gatherings of the church are designed by Jesus Christ, and they are regulated in Scripture. Now, let's look at this in general, and then we'll get more specific. In general, I want you to notice there's a vertical element, we worship God, and then in a moment, we're going to see there's a horizontal element, we edify one another. First, obviously, when we gather, there's a vertical element, amen? We come together to worship the Lord our God, to lift up the name of the Lord Jesus, We have the Scripture verse, and we sang this verse earlier today, Revelation 5.12, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And that's one of many elements of what might happen in gathered worship in the vertical element. So much of what we do is vertical. We're lifting our hearts. We're focusing our gaze on God and the things of God. So in, in in a general way, there's a vertical element. We worship God. But there's also, in a general way, a horizontal element. We edify each other. 
there's a horizontal element. We edify each other. And I want to emphasize this because it is very powerfully and very clearly emphasized in the pages of the New Testament. Yet, in spite of the passages we're going to look at that emphasize this, there are a lot of believers today who are, I think, overacting to what they call man-centered worship, overreacting rather, and what they're saying is, the whole thing is for God. It's only about God. It's not for people. Don't think about people. Don't worry about people. Just look up. The whole service is worshiping for God. Not true. Well, it is that, but it's something else at the same time. So we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 14, and I'm going to give you just one verse, though there are many there to this effect. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, Paul sums up what he's been arguing in the whole chapter thus far with these words, let all things be done for what? For glorifying God? No, he doesn't say that. It's all Godward. It's all looking to God. Doesn't matter about people. No, he doesn't say that. In fact, not once in 1 Corinthians 14, the whole chapter is about gathered worship and what it's supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. Like no other place in God's Word, you have regulations for gathered worship, and never once does he even mention the vertical. Now, we know the vertical is there, but the whole chapter is about the horizontal. And in 1 Corinthians 14, seven times he uses either the noun or the verb, you're there to edify edify, 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 seven times. So uh, you might say, Paul, how very unspiritual, how man-centered of you. It's all for God. It's all for worship. But no, Paul says, when you pray, it's also for other people to edify them. When you sing, you're, also, you're singing to God, but you're also singing to people to edify them. When you speak, you're speaking to people to edify them. And he says, do all to build them up and strengthen the people who are there. Interesting. So if I have my way, I don't want you saying, it's, all, it's only for God. Don't think about people. No, you're really supposed to think about people and God and there's no conflict between the two. John Frame, a great theologian who's now just now retired, in his excellent book titled Worship and Spirit and Truth, on page eight he writes, because of the vertical element, some might conclude that we should not pay any attention to human needs in worship. He goes on, talk like that sounds very pious, but it is unbiblical. We should make sure that our worship is edifying to believers. Later he writes, in worship, this is something, get, get ready for this. You're going to choke on this a little bit. He writes, in worship, we should not be so preoccupied with God that we ignore one another. So yes, we are preoccupied with God, but not so much that it's like, I'm only here for God. It's all about God. I don't care about you all. It's all here for me and God. No, it's actually here for you and God and you and all the people who are in the room there with you. Let all things be done for building up. So the gatherings of the church are to be scriptural, and that means in general there are vertical and horizontal elements. Now let's go on. So what are the scriptural elements of gathered worship? We were at a first take. If you don't know what a first take is, it's a little event we have a bunch of times a year where after, after the second service, some of you who are newer have lunch with me downstairs. We provide lunch, and uh, we get to just talk. Here's what Cornerstone's about. You get to ask your questions. I get to dodge them. <laughs> Try and answer my way around them because some of them are kind of hard. 
But anyway, at a first take, somebody said to me, Pastor Steve, uh, I asked the pastor at the church I was just leaving. I get the church I was leaving talk a lot. They never named the church. I'm thankful for that. But the church I'm leaving and I'm coming here to look at Cornerstone, I asked the pastor, what are the elements we're supposed to include in worship? Because they were a little perplexed about some of the elements showing up. And he said, I couldn't get an answer out of my pastor. So I'm asking you as I come into the church, what are the elements in corporate worship? And I'm about to tell you what I told him. In our gathering, we are too. Well, before we go there, let me read again from the magnificent London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. And in chapter 22, paragraph 1b, they write these words. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. What are they saying? They're just saying what we've said earlier today, that it's not up to us, it's up to the head of the church to tell us what to do when we gather. And in the pages of the New Testament, he tells us real clearly what to do. And we find these are the scriptural elements for worship. So I think you know these. I sure hope I can get you to still pay attention while we go through them. Here they are. In our gatherings, we are supposed to, one, read Scripture. Amen? One of the reasons God wants you to gather is so you'll hear Scripture read. This was especially important to New Testament believers, and all the way up until the 1400s, or was it, yeah, I think it was 1400, when Gutenberg invented the printing press, and then years after that, before people had enough money to buy a Bible made on his printing press, the only place you heard Scripture was when you gathered, and you gathered to hear the Word of God read. Is it still important that we hear the Word of God read? 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul's writing to Timothy. Timothy's in Ephesus. Paul's hoping to get there, Ephesus. And Paul says, Timothy, until I come, devote yourself. This is what pastors are supposed to do. There are things to which we are supposed to devote. Remember Acts 2.42 from last week's sermon? And they, the early believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were devoted to that. You're not getting between me and my church meeting. Uh-uh, I'll mow you down. And here it says to, to pastors, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. We're supposed to read God's Word, and you're supposed to hear God's Word. And this is one of the great engines, one of the means that God intends for your spiritual development. And it goes on to say, um, uh, you're to teach and preach Scripture. Sorry, that's the second thing we're to do. We're to read Scripture. We're also to teach and preach Scripture. Look at 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 with me. Paul writes, I charge you. That's strong. I charge you. It gets stronger. In the presence of God. Well, that's getting real strong. And it gets stronger. And of Christ Jesus. That's stronger. And it gets stronger still. Who is to judge the living and, his, and the dead? That's really getting strong. And then it gets stronger still. And by his appearing in his kingdom. This is a strong exhortation. This is a strong charge. Paul carefully selects and heaps up terms, meaning 
Timothy, I really, 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 really want you and all other ministers of the word doing this thing. Verse two, preach the word. Well, how often should I do it? When should I do it? What if people don't seem to want to hear the word? Let's go on. Next slide. Be ready in season and out of season. Preaching is like hunting. There's a time of year when what? Deer are in season. There's a time of year when deer are out of season. And there are times and seasons on, life, on, on earth's experience where preaching is in season. And man, they're coming and they want to hear it. And they're hungry for God's word preached. And then there are times when it's out of season. And they're like, oh, that's one option. I might do that if I don't have something better to do. But you're to just stand in the pulpit and preach the word. You're to be ready for that in season, whether they want it. You're to be ready for that out of season, whether they don't want it. And here's some of what you include in it. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Wow, what a verse for a pastor. You're a pastor and you're looking for something to tattoo across your back? That'd be a good one. Do it right here and see it every day in the mirror when you brush your teeth. So what are we supposed to do in our gatherings? We're supposed to read Scripture. We're supposed to teach and preach Scripture. Are you seeing a theme here? Scripture, Scripture. Here's the third thing we're supposed to do. We're supposed to sing Scripture. We're supposed to sing it to God and to one another. And here's the verse that tells us that, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. There's to be a rich indwelling of the word of God in your soul. You're hearing it read in the gatherings. You're hearing it preached in the gatherings. We're very fortunate. We have Bibles, numerous translations on ourselves. We're hearing it read. We're hearing it. We even have devices and we can push buttons and scripture is read to us while we drive and do other things. We can have scripture like nobody's ever been able to have scripture before. And and God wants us to have that in our singing. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another It's not just directed toward God, it's directed toward one another. Your singing is. You're singing for God and you're singing for them. Teaching and instructing, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There's the vertical element at the very end. It's to God. But before that, you're singing the word that dwells in you richly to your brothers and sisters in Christ to build them up, to strengthen them, an experience God intends them to have, an engine for their spiritual maturity and growth is a weekly gathering where they hear other believers who obviously believe what they're singing, and they sing it with gusto and heart and passion and conviction, and you're supposed to experience that. He wants you in the middle of that. He wants you there where that's happening. By the way, those of you with us online, you're not really with us. Those of you watching online, you're watching. Uh, I'm thankful you're watching online, but you're not experiencing that kind of thing. And God intends it. So we read Scripture. We're to teach and preach Scripture. We are to sing Scripture. By the way, because our singing is supposed to be characterized by a rich indwelling of the Word of God, That is why we are seeking to select from all the possible songs we could sing those that are generally on the more instructive, theological, meaty, scriptural side of the spectrum. So this to answer some of you who periodically say, and bless you for this, bless you, I'm happy with you, bless you, but you come to me or one of the others and you say, "Um, could we sing more songs that are on shine because I know them? 
Well, I'm thankful for shine. I'm not here to diss shine. I know it's nice to listen to sometimes when you're driving, and I listen to it sometimes. Heck, I listen to WPOC sometimes when I'm driving, but I usually listen to nothing. I just want to think. But anyway, so they're, they're shining. Can we sing some more songs from shine? Because I know them. Well, we, we would try to if we could find some good ones. Right? I mean, they're, they're good. That is, they're good for driving. They're good for kind of Christian entertainment. But there's not much depth in most of them. There, there tends to be just a couple of themes that are repeated over and over, and nothing like Timothy Dwight's great hymn that's rooted in Scripture, explaining Scripture, unfolding theology, and may the church of Jesus Christ get back to a richer theological expression in its hymnody that the Word of Christ dwells in us richly. Amen? Yeah, Amen. All right, so we are to read Scripture, teach and preach Scripture, sing Scripture. Number four, we're to pray scripturally. That's to be in our assemblies, 1 Timothy 2, 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And by the way, just because of our times, I will go on to add, and Paul put it in because of his times, 1 Timothy 2, 8, I desire then that at every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So you're to experience corporate prayers that are offered up by the men of the church. Number five, we're to take communion. Number six, we're going to go quickly, we're to baptize. Number seven, we're to give. They did that in church. Number eight, we're to fellowship. That's in many verses. And number nine, and I like this one, we're to do announcements. You say, how, Pastor Steve, how do you justify doing announcements in the gathered worship of God's people? Well, in, in 1 Corinthians 16, which was to be read in all the churches, Paul did announcements, as in Ephesians 6, as in 2 Timothy 4.20, and other places. So it is biblically warranted, is it legitimate, that we get, take a little time and tell you, by the way, this is coming up. And here's that event that's coming over there. So that's a pretty good list of the things the head and the foundation wants us doing. He wants you weekly for your spiritual well-being and for carrying out the mission. He wants you gathered with God's people where they read Scripture, teach and preach Scripture, sing Scripture, pray scripturally, take communion, baptize, give fellowship, and do announcements. So what have we seen? Next slide, please. The gatherings of the church are essential, weekly, and scriptural. Now I have one pertinent question for you and then a couple more stanzas of Mr. Dwight's hymn. Here's the question. So are the weekly gatherings of your church essential to you? And I pray that your answer is, oh yes. Are they? Are they essential to you? Do you see how essential they are to the mission, how essential they are to your spiritual development? Are they essential to you? Put them on your calendar. Don't let other lesser things keep you from them. The good is often the enemy of the best. Choose the best. Let's close with two more stanzas from Timothy Dwight's great hymn. Listen. He wrote, For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend, to her, the church, my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. One more stanza. Sure as thy truth shall last, to Zion shall be given the brightest glories earth can yield and brighter bliss of heaven. The church of the Lord Jesus. Let's bow and pray together. Father, thank you for giving us these portions of your word to instruct us in your way. We pray now that you would lead some first 
to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. That they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. That they would bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, please draw men and women and boys and girls to yourself that they may be saved. And all we who have been so drawn, we pray that you will teach us to be biblical churchmen and biblical church women, and that we will conduct ourselves in the house of God as you have ordained, to your honor and your glory, and also to build up brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you now for communion, which you have ordained that we would experience freely so that we may remember our Savior. Help us to remember him with love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.